0: My is Michael, and I'm one of the pastors here, and I want to welcome you. Uh, we're having a little shorter worship at the, the front side tonight because we're doing more worship at the end with communion, so we're looking forward to that. But uh, we're going to be going to our time of teaching in just a moment, and so if you're brand new, inside your uh, program is a green and white message, you know, sheet we use every week. But um, also, before we do it, I, I just want a big, uh, kind of big uh, shout out, thank you to all of those who made um, VBS uh, vacation while Work this week. Um, and uh, in fact, if you served in that, would you stand so we could just thank you as a body for, for serving our kids so well? <laughs> thank you so much. You know, we had almost 400 kids here this week, and uh, it takes just hundreds of volunteers to make that happen, of all different kinds of uh, skills and backgrounds and, and uh, things, and it was just... It was beautiful. You know, one of the things our kids did this week is, you know, here as a church, we two or three times a year do what we call an initiative for the poor. I know a lot of you are familiar with that, where we turn our attention to some place in the world that's really going through a hard time, and we we do special offerings to do something uh, to make their world better. And uh, our kids do that in VBS. They do an initiative for the poor, and they raised over three thousand dollars this week uh, to to uh, help out moms in Africa. And so, um, just, just great as that next generation um, gets that uh, vision for uh, using our resources to extend God's kingdom and show his love. So, uh, anyway, we are going to go into our time of teaching right now. And so, uh, I'm going to go ahead and pray, and then we're going to jump in. You guys all ready to go? Okay, let's pray. God, we're just excited to be here in your place, uh, underneath your leadership. We just acknowledge you as our king. Um, we say that no good thing happens in this place apart from your Holy Spirit. Oh, Lord, so we just cover, covet the work of your Spirit. As we talked about last week, as you hover over a person's life and say, let there be light, a new creation happens when we come to Christ. We pray that you would hover over this place today, and once again, you would say, let there be light, and that we would see who you are, who Jesus is, what you've done to make this new creation possible and clear clear more clearly and with greater love and gratitude than we ever have before. We pray this in Jesus' name, and everyone said, amen. Amen. Well, our story starts today in the middle of the desert, Um, but he's not here by himself. This is where he's grown up. Um, This is all he knows. Um, His whole life has been spent. He was born here. He's grown up. He has a few years here. He's part of a large family. They live in a Bedouin-style tent. He's very close with his brothers, sisters, um, close with his parents. One of his favorite times of the day is when dinner is done and everything's cleaned up and his family, his extended family, friends, gather around the campfire and tell stories. And the older people tell stories of their past and where they've been and, and he loves those stories and it's, it was on one of those nights that he heard this particular story for the very first time. The reason he's so excited on this night is that tomorrow that that story is gonna be reenacted. Tomorrow, he's gonna get up early. In fact, his father has promised him that they'll get up very early so they'll have time to hike to the middle of the camp in the hopes that this year will be the first time in his life he'll see this event for the first time with his own eyes. And so when the morning comes, he wakes up and it's... uh, cool morning air. He and, his bro- he and his father begin to pack for the day, but there's no food needed for this day because on this day, there'll be no eating. And as they start heading a long ways off towards the center of the camp, they hear in the distance the sound of the ram's horn, signaling the call to the people to gather. Well, today... We are continuing this series that we've been in for the last uh, 9, 10 weeks called Metamorphosis Face to Face. And for those of you who are new, this is a series that's based on a letter. It's a letter that's written from a man named the Apostle Paul. He's one of the key leaders of the early movement of Jesus. And he's writing to a group of Christ followers that have come to Jesus. In fact, he's led many of them directly to Jesus about five or six years before and, uh, and so now he's writing back uh, to, to like, shepherd them in their new walk with Jesus. And so they live in a major metropolitan city, one of the most important cities in the entire Roman Empire. The name of the city is Corinth. And so this letter we call Paul's second letter to the Corinthians. But the reason we call this series Metamorphosis is that uh, one of the key words that Paul uses to describe God's vision for our lives is the Greek word metamorpho. And of course, that's where we get our English word metamorphosis, which is a word we use to describe a slow but profound, even a radical change like caterpillar to butterfly. Uh, but in this letter, Paul begins to impact that God's vision for our life is that we be transformed to be like his son and that when a man or one comes to Jesus, it's like God says, let there be light the light goes on and we enter into this new face-to-face relationship with God through Christ. Um, And then as we learn to listen and follow the leading of his spirit, we're transformed to be the people we were created to be. And so last week, topic on the table was new creation, but topic today, the question is, how can this new creation happen? Like what allows it to happen? What enables it to happen? And that become more clear as we go along. But if you have your Bibles, you have your apps, let's go ahead and open up. There in your note sheet, you have a section called Metamorphosis: the message of reconciliation. And if you have your Bibles, steps, let's open up to chapter um, chapter five of Second Corinthians, and we're going to pick it up where we left off last week at verse seventeen. So in verse 17, he says, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, and and that's kind of Paul's favorite way of of saying you've come into relationship with Jesus, supernatural uh, connection with him by the Holy Spirit, you've become a follower, you're in Christ. He says, so if anyone is in Christ, uh, the new creation, or is the new creation prophesied, promised? by the prophets of Israel for hundreds of years, that one day God would return to his people, turn all wrongs to right, and bring in new heavens and a new earth. What Paul is saying is that uh, that, that new creation that was promised at the end of time actually breaks into time and space right here and now when someone comes to Jesus, and supernaturally, they're changed from the inside at the core of their being, the new creation has come, and so we talked about that last week. The old is gone, the new has come. Now, the question of course that we're gonna be ans- asking and answering today is how is this new creation possible? And so we need to step back and look at the big picture story of the Bible, right? So the big picture story is that, is that we were created to be in relationship with God, to be like God, to be rule over creation for God. But as we saw last week, we rebelled against him and as a result of that, we experienced death on every level. There was a sentence of death passed over our race for our high treason, our rebellion against our true king and we took all of creation down with us, which is why the world is like it is today. So the question is, well, if there is a sentence of death over our race because of our rebellion at the first creation, How in the world can God bypass that judgment and restore all creation, restore us with a new creation, um, when there's a sentence of death over our race? Like like how is that possible? And that's what this passage is going to be speaking to today. And so he says, verse 18, all of this, this new creation, it's from God, it's not from ourselves, it wasn't our idea, it's coming from God who has reconciled us, he's restored us to relationship through Christ, remember Christ means what? Messiah, Messiah. that's gonna be important today. So he's reconciled us through Messiah, and he's given us, Paul and his team, the ministry of reconciliation. So what I want you to catch is Paul is making two claims here, all right? His first claim is that God has somehow come up with a way to reconcile a rebel race in spite of our rebellion, in spite of the fact there's a sentence of death, that God has come up with a way to do new creation. But secondly, Paul is claiming, and remember the whole backdrop of Second Corinthians is that there are people in Corinth, the church in Corinth, that are criticizing Paul, questioning whether he's a true apostle, speaks for Jesus. So the second claim Paul is making is that not only has God acted in Messiah to reconcile the world, but secondly, that he's chosen Paul and his team to be ministers of that reconciliation, to bring the message, to explain how this whole process works. And so he goes on and he says, he's gonna talk more about this reconciliation, how it works, verse 19. And here's how it works. God was reconciling the world to himself. So notice this. It's not the world reconciling ourselves to God. It's not like rebel race. We suddenly are pursuing God. We're gonna, hey, we want to seek. It's God pursuing us. God was reconciling the world to himself in Messiah, not counting men's sins against them. So this sin issue has to be resolved. The rebellion has to be resolved. If you murder someone and you go to court and you stand before a righteous judge, you expect to have a sentence carried out. The judge can't just say, that's okay, do a better job next time. Right, and so, and so how does God overlook, how does he not count our rebellion? How is he able to reconcile us in spite of our rebellion? Uh, he says um, he, that God was somehow in Christ and he was not counting men's sins against him and he's committed to us, to Paul and his team, the message of reconciliation. Now, subtext here, Corinthians If you reject the message I have brought about Messiah, and if you reject me as apostle, you're rejecting the message of reconciliation. And so he says, to clarify this in verse 20, he says, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors. Now we understand, he's talking about he and his team, Paul and his team, we're Christ's ambassadors. Now we understand what an ambassador is, right? An ambassador is someone who is sent from a president or a king or a nation to another foreign power usually to represent and to communicate the message of the president or the nation or the king accurately to that other nation. So when you're dealing with an ambassador, you're not just dealing with the ambassador, you're dealing with the one that the ambassador represents. To reject the message of the ambassador is to reject the messenger, the nation, the king, the president that sent it. And so he said, we are therefore Christ's ambassadors as though God were making his appeal through us. Like he sent us to make the appeal to you. And he said, we implore you on Christ's behalf, on behalf of Messiah. Uh, This is a very strong word in Greek, This, we implore you. Um, In the New American Standard Version, which is a very literal translation, it translates this, we beg you. So we implore, we beg you on behalf of Messiah, be reconciled to God. God is pursuing you. Be reconciled to God. Respond to this offer. And then he goes, one of the most profound statements in the New Testament about how this reconciliation happens. How is it possible for God to overlook our rebellion and forgive us and reconcile? He says, um, God made him who knew no sin. Uh, so who's that? Jesus. Yeah, Jesus. So, so Jesus lived the perfect life. He loved God, he loved people, even the extent of giving his life for his enemies. Um, so, so he made him who knew no sin uh, to be sin for us. So there's a substitution. Sometimes we call this the great exchange, right? Uh, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God and catch us not just legally righteous or forgiven, but truly transformed to be the people who are created to be, to be righteous like he is righteous, to be transformed, and it says uh, in, verse, in chapter six, remember that the, the uh, chapter divisions weren't there, and this is another great example of where they shouldn't have put one. <laughs> but in verse one, he says, so as God's co-workers, speaking about himself and his team, they're the ambassadors, right? We urge you not to what? Receive, receive the grace of God in vain. So what does it mean to receive the grace of God in vain? Well, it means God is making an offer, it's an incredibly gracious offer, but we need to respond, right? We need to come under the leadership of our true king. We need to repent from running our own life. We need to accept this offer of amnesty based on this great substitution from Christ. We need to come under his leadership, be filled with the Holy Spirit. We need to be living out new creation lives. And so he says, uh, as God co- work, uh, co- and if, if we don't, if we hear the message but don't respond, it's done us no good, it's in vain. And he says, for he says, and now Paul's gonna quote from Isaiah 49. Of course, Paul loves the scriptures, right? He sees them as the word of God, the inerrant word of God, and he loves the scriptures, and often his writings, he's going to weave them in this is a very powerful passage. We don't have time to go into great detail, but later on today, I will talk to you about the prophet Isaiah. And we will talk about four passages that are called the Servant Songs. Where uh, serv- uh, the, the, this, this mysterious uh, uh, person call, who's called the Servant of the Lord, or the Servant of Lord, all caps, Servant of Yahweh. There's four passages in Isaiah where this mysterious Servant of the Lord appears. And uh, sometimes is clearly the servant of the Lord is the nation of Israel. Uh, that's called to serve God and be a light to nations. But there's other times when the servant of the Lord is clearly not the nation but an individual from the nation. And this is one of the four servant songs. And in this servant song in Isaiah, uh, God is prophesying a day when the servant of the Lord will come and bring salvation to the nations. And so Paul is quoting this passage. I'm sure they are familiar with that. And he says, where God says, in the time of my favor, I heard you. This is from uh, Isaiah 49. And in the, t- in the day of salvation, I helped you. And so what Paul is saying is that that day of salvation prophesied has come. We're living in the day of the Lord, the day of the servant of Yahweh. We're living in that day, and so if you reject this day, this is the day of salvation you're living. It. If you reject the message, there is no other salvation that's coming. And he said, so I tell you, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. That word of prophecy has been fulfilled with the coming of Messiah, and so we're living in that day. And if you reject the message about the Messiah, there is no other Why, you've you've, uh, received the grace of God in vain. So that's a passage, right? It's a passage about new creation. How is it possible about uh, the the new creation? How is it possible to forgive us in Christ uh, and and how that happens, how that works, and then a call for us to respond. And so what I wanna do today in our passage and our time we have together is I wanna highlight three big picture principles that flow out of this passage about the new creation, about uh, how the new creation's possible and what does it look like in our life to respond to this day of salvation that we're living in. So there in your note sheet, the first, uh, there's a section that's called Metamorphosis, God's Reconciliation, Our Response, and so let's jump in. The first first principle goes like this. If you're living in the time of Paul, maybe not so much today, maybe not in America in 2000, whatever we are. uh, Maybe not today, but if you're living in the Roman Empire, if you're living in Corinth, all right, if you're living in Corinth in the first century in the Roman Empire, this message of reconciliation that Paul has just spelled out, the message is mind-blowing. Now, for some of us, like me, that are a long time Christ follower, I almost feel sorry for myself here. (laughs) Because what happens when you have been a long time Christ follower, or you were raised in a Christian home, we can become so familiar with the message of the gospel, we miss the obvious. But the obvious is when when this message first came to the first century, it was radical, it was mind-blowing, it was shocking, and it was even scandalous. The world had never heard a message like this that seemed so, on the one hand, ludicrous, on the other hand, if you're a Jew, blasphemous, the message was mind-blowing. So just to be, make sure we're clear, let's be clear on what Paul is saying here. This passage in Segment Corinthians 5 reminds me of the passage we studied last fall in Philippians 2, where Paul's talking about the humility of Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not consider equality with God something to be held on to, but emptied himself and became a slave, one of us, human being, and then went to the lowest rung and died on a Roman cross. You combine that passage with this passage, this is the message that Paul was bringing, that there is a God, not many gods, Romans, we'll talk about that in a second, there is a God he is a creator God. He's a transcendent God. And that this creator became a part of his creation to rescue a rebel race of enemies. And he became one of us and was crucified on a Roman cross to rescue the human race. Now, that message was absolutely mind-blowing shocking and scandalous. Why? Because in the first century, there were gods for everything. We're going to talk about this in two weeks, but you know, when we think of the Roman gods, we think of the big ones, right? Like Zeus, and we think of the uh, you know, Greek god Zeus, and you know, Jupiter is Roman name, and we think of Mercury, and we may think of Mars, and we may think of Athena and think of Apollo. We think of the big ones, the big pantheon, right? The ones we studied in school. The Romans had gods for everything. Gods for birth, gods for childbirth, different stages of childbirth. I mean, it's just God's for everything. Your, God, your life was completely ruled by the gods at every layer of culture. And the claim that there's only one God was completely, like, only the Jews that we hate, the crazy Jews, like, <laughs> only Jews. Like, we, no, there are many gods. And then catch this, the gods were like big versions of us The gods raped and slept around and got angry and through vengeance and they were jealous and they were arrogant and they held grudges. This is who the Roman world was populated by these gods. The idea that there would be one God and then catch us, that this God would love us, care about us, pursue us, no, the gods were to be placated, The placated, the, 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 the gods were to be held at bay. They were not necessarily your friends. It was revolutionary. You know, several years, years ago, I read a really excellent book by, uh, it's a secular book, by a guy named Larry Hurtado. It's called The Destroyer of the Gods. And he talks about, what Christianity was like, how it was perceived in the ancient world. And there you know, I put a quote from Larry, and it's it's not the easiest quote to follow, but I think it's worth it. He says, the notion, the idea, that there was one true transcendent God, and that this God loves the world, or humanity, may have become subsequently, like in our time, such a, such a, so much a familiar notion that we cannot easily realize how utterly strange even ridiculous it was in the Roman Empire. The notion that the gods, like think of you know, small g, that the gods love humanity with anything approaching relational intensity ascribed to you know the Christian God rather ubiquitously, like all the time, in the early Christian texts, is to put it mildly, hard to find in pagan texts, the Greek or Roman period. This was a completely new view of God, mind-boggling. But it was not just mind-boggling, it was both ludicrous and blasphemous. Because, let's just break it down. For for Jews, Messiahs win. They don't lose, by definition. And to be crucified on a Roman cross is the worst loss of all. You are a poser. You're a fraud. And on top of that, in the book of Deuteronomy, in the Old Testament law, it says that anyone who's executed and then hung on on a tree is under the curse of God. So for a Jew to believe that Jesus was the Christ, the Messiah, hung on a Roman tree was not only ludicrous, it was blasphemous. And on the flip side, the Romans were all into power. Crucifixions were about power. Crucifixion was reserved for the lowest of the low, mostly slaves, robbers, Uh, technically it was illegal to crucify a Roman citizen no matter what you do. You try to kill Caesar, now you can't be crucified. That's illegal. It was considered so humiliating, so excruciating, so uh, debasing that in Roman, polite Roman culture, it was not considered appropriate to even bring up crucifixions. And so for Romans... For people of Corinth, you're claiming that this Jew from the backwaters of Judea, uh, who was crucified on a Roman cross, you're claiming that that is God has come in that person to rescue us through that cross. That is ludicrous. It's ridiculous. It is reckless. Who could ever believe such a crazy idea? And yet we come to church and we go, oh yeah, Jesus died for our sins. (laughs) It was mind-blowing. This is why when Paul came to Corinth, he said, I determined when in 1 Corinthians 2, it says, I determined when I came to know nothing else but just stay on Jesus on the cross. If you're going to come to Jesus, it's going to be a work of God in your life. He's going to have to remove the veil because there's no way you're going to get this on your own. And in chapter 1 of 1 Corinthians, this is what he says. We preach Christ, Messiah. We preach Messiah crucified, a stumbling block to Jews for reasons we just described. And foolishness, if I remember right in the Greek, it's the word moron. (laughs) And foolishness to Gentiles, to non-Jews, but to those whom God has what? Called, chosen, said, let there be light, taking the veil away. Both Jews and Greeks, Christ is the power of God and the wisdom of God. The message is mind-blowing, it is shocking, it is scandalous, and it's unlike any message the world has ever heard before or after. You know, a few months after Paul wrote this letter, 2 Corinthians, sends it with Titus to Corinth, Paul travels to Corinth, and in the summer of 57 AD, he'll write his most famous letter where he, in more than anyone can, describes the message of Jesus, and it's the book of Romans. And when you get to chapter five, here's how he describes it. He said, there in your new sheet, it says, God demonstrates his own love for us that while we were still what? Sinners. Sinners. I wish we could see that word for the first time. Failures, While well, we're failures, not just failures, rebellious failures. In fact, a couple verses later, he will define what he means by sinner and he will use the Greek word ekthroi, which means enemies. And he says, so while we were sinners slash failures slash rebels slash enemies, Christ died for us. He pursued us. He came after his enemies. He became one of us and went to death in the most humiliating and excruciating way. Did you know the word excruciating is the word that described the pain of the cross in Latin? Ex crux, E18. It's the pain of the cross. That there is a God, there's a God who loves us in spite of our rebellion, became one of us and went to death on a Roman cross to rescue us. The message, if we could only see it with fresh eyes, is mind. Number two. Number two, the message is the story of substitution. So Paul says that God has entrusted to him the message of reconciliation. And if you break that down, well, how does that message of reconciliation work? It's really the story of substitution, of exchange. Look at 520 there in your note sheet. the second verse there. It says, God made him who had no sin to be sin for us, substitution, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. My life for your life. At the heart of the story, the heart of the message, it's the story of substitution. Now, on the surface, Uh, this seems new. Like, no one saw this coming. When Jesus was going to Jerusalem the last time and told his disciples, I'm going to be arrested, I'm going to be rejected, I'm going to be killed, that none of them said, oh, that makes sense. (laughs) Yeah, we saw that one coming a mile off. They all said, no, no, Messiahs win, Messiahs don't lose. Like, no one saw this coming. But once it happened and you look in the rear view mirror, you see that the story of substitution is the story that God has been telling all along. And that this chapter, the chapter of the Messiah, is sums up where those stories been going all along. Like, let me just give you a couple examples of this. We started the day with a story of this young boy growing up in this Bedouin tent with his extended large family, very close, loved to sit around the campfire, tell stories at night. And that's where he first heard this story about this very special day in the life of his people that Jews still call today Yom Kippur. Now, Yom means a day in Hebrew, and Kippur means covering. And so we sometimes call this the Day of Atonement. It's a very special day in Israel's life. It was the holiest day of the year. It only happened once in the year, it was in the fall. And, uh, and so let's step back, before we, we jump into that, so, so the story that I told is, think of it like historical fiction, right? The father, the son going early to see them get from row seats, That's my part of the story. That's the fiction part of the story. I'm sure that that story was played out hundreds and thousands of times every year. The history part of it is what happened on the day of atonement. And so to understand this, we need to step back in time. We need to go back when God rescued the nation of Israel out of Egypt, out of slavery, and you remember that, and God took them three months, they arrived at Mount Sinai, we studied this earlier, God, God comes to them and offers to enter into covenant, a formal relationship, I will be your God, you'll be my people, much like a marriage. And you remember that Israel was so taken with this God who rescued them and His amazing power, they said, I do. They enter into this formal relationship, And one of the first things God says is, I I want you to build me a tent. You live in tents, I want a Bedouin tent too. And so I want this tent to be right in the center of the nation, Uh, three tribes to the north, three to the south, three to the east, three to the west. It's a very special tent. And the back of this tent was a very special compartment, the smallest compartment. The whole tent was holy, but this was the holiest of all the holy places. So in Hebrew, that's how you say it, the holiest of the holies. And so in this holy of the holies, the Ark of the Covenant would be and. Once a year, God said, once a year, I want the high priest to go in, but he can't go in by himself. He has to take the blood of a bull for his own sin, a blood of a goat for the sin of the people, and go into the presence because that's where my house is. That's my room. And I will be there hovering over the ark and over the cherubim. And once a year, he's to go in and sprinkle the blood in a certain way to make atonement for my home so that you and I can continue having relationship. And when he came out, then he was to sprinkle blood on the altar so that the sacrifices for atonement would be acceptable. So in order to have relationship with this holy God, there had to be atonement. Your life for my life, the life of the animal for yours. On the day of atonement, there was also a second goat. This is where we get the term scapegoat, by the way. A second goat was taken, and after the sacrifice, the high priest would stab before the goat and put both of his hands on top of the goat's head and confess the sins of the nation. And then that goat would be taken away into the wilderness, far away from the presence of God. And you see the symbolism of all this. The sacrifice, the animal's life for our life, the the scapegoat, taking away our sin, transfer of sin. This story of substitution is woven through the whole narrative of the Bible. If you move to the prophets, we have a great example. Remember I talked about the prophet Isaiah and how the prophet Isaiah had four in his long prophecy, 66 chapters, there are four what we call servant songs. And this is where that mysterious figure, the servant of the Lord, Lord all caps, the servant of Yahweh, like I said, sometimes clearly referring to the nation of Israel, that's the Lord's servant in the world. They failed at that job, but they, that was the calling. And then at other times, out of this nation, there is one who's called the servant of Yahweh. And the most famous servant song is at the end of Isaiah 52 and then goes into 53, another really awkward chapter break. Uh, But It's the end of 52 where God says that one day the servant of Yahweh, he's going to send the servant of Yahweh to the nation. But when he comes, though he's been sent by Yahweh, the nation is going to reject him. In fact, they're going to murder him. But what they're not gonna realize as they're murdering him, thinking they're doing God's work, he's getting what he's deserved. That he is actually taking on, he's dying for their sin, the sin of the nation. And so there on your note sheet, I put a few excerpts from that beautiful passage. You might wanna read the whole thing later on your own. But it's talking about the servant of the Lord. It said, surely he, the servant of Yahweh, he took up our pain, and bore our suffering. He was pierced for our transgressions. See, substitution. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace, think new creation. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed, substitution. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us, every one of us in this room, no exceptions, has turned to our own way. And the Lord, Yahweh, all caps, Yahweh has laid on him the iniquity of us all. See the, you see the transfer going on here? The, the hands of the high priest on the head of the, there's a transfer. It says the Lord has raised, put on him the iniquity of us all. Yet, crazy enough, it was the Lord Yahweh's will to crush him. This whole scenario was part of the plan and to cause him to suffer and though Yahweh makes his life a what? An offering for sin. then he goes on to say that he will see the light of life and the good things are gonna come, right? And so this concept of substitution, woven all through the story. I believe these are the kinds of passages. Luke, I mean, uh, Leviticus 16, Isaiah 52. These are the kinds of passages that Jesus shared with his disciples the first Sunday of his resurrection. (laughs) I always get punctuated at the perfect time. The first Sunday of the resurrection, so I don't know if you remember this account, but the first Sunday of the resurrection, Jesus shows up behind locked doors and scares his disciples to death. I always wonder. he's probably like, oh, this is good, I'm going to get them. But, uh, you know, like, I'm going to jump out, like, this is the ultimate jump out. But after they, like, peel themselves off the ceiling, and they're he convinces them, no, it's really him. He's got a real body 2.0. right? They assume it's like a spirit or a God. they have nothing in their, in their worldview that sees a resurrection happening in the middle of time and space. Resurrection at the end of time? Yes, not in the middle. No idea this could have been possible. Um, there he is, and he convinces them, right? Here's the scars on my hands, here's the scar on my side. Uh, He have some fish here. Let me eat it. Spirits, don't eat fish. So after he, like, okay. And they're trying to wrap their mind. You know what he does? He does a Bible study with them. And what he does is he takes them back through the story. But now he opens their mind so they can read the story. It was there in plain view. But they missed all along. And there in Unuchit in chapter 24, As he he said to them, this is what I told you when I was still with you, you know, before I was arrested. Everything must be fulfilled that's written about me in the law of Moses. We just looked at an example, Leviticus 16. And the prophets, we just looked at an example, Isaiah 52 and 53. And the Psalms, which we didn't have time for, but maybe Psalm 22 or Psalm 16, some of the other Psalms. Psalm 2, and then he opened their minds so they could understand the scriptures. For the early believers, it's like the Hebrew scriptures were their Bible, but now, as a result of the death and resurrection, the coming of the Spirit, their eyes were open and they read with new eyes, and they could see why Messiah had to die now and the story was clear to them. It was the story of substitution. Now, let's just talk briefly on, before we move on, on what this means for you and I. What this means is that our relationship with God, our reconciliation with God, your status as a son or daughter of a king is completely based on what Messiah has done and has nothing to do with what you have done. See, he was bruised for your transgressions. This is a very hard thing for us as fallen human beings to get this through our head that God doesn't love us based on our performance. Very difficult. We keep coming back. And in times of question or doubt, we we tend to start thinking through, like, am I good enough? And we, we we start thinking like every other human religion. And every other religion, your relationship is based on what you do or what you've done. And we naturally go back to this. But what I want you to catch is the message of reconciliation is your relationship with God, the basis for it has nothing to do with you. That the reconciliation was about a God who came after you when you were far from him and didn't want anything to do with him. And he came after you and he loved you while you were an extroite. And if that's true, how much more does he love you now that you are a reconciled son or daughter? And so we tend to go back to this, don't we? We Now, now, now let me make this clear. Sometimes in Christian circles, we mix this up. We get this this kind of teaching that, hey, when Jesus sees you, he doesn't see you. He just sees, um, when God sees you, he just sees Jesus. And eh. that's not quite it. That's not quite it. Remember what we learned a couple weeks ago in 2 Corinthians 5, that every one of us will stand before God one-on-one and will be evaluated and will receive what's due us for deeds done in the body? When you come into a relationship with Jesus, it's a real relationship. You can make him mad. You can make him sad. You can do what you're supposed to be, but, but your core relationship as a son or daughter is never based on your performance. Just like in your family, if you have a son or daughter, you, hopefully, love them. (laughs) If you can't, just play along. Uh, You love them, and sometimes they make you happy by their choices, and sometimes they make you sad, and sometimes they make you mad, but you never stop loving them. You see what I'm saying? Your core relationship with God is not based on your performance, based on His. Because of Him, you're a son or a daughter of the King and He loves you. But it's a real relationship. And you will be held accountable for the choices you make. You can grieve the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit's not like, I don't see you, I just see Jesus. No, He's griefed you're grieving the Holy Spirit. Jesus can write letters to the church of Revelation and say, you think you're rich, you think you're wealthy, you think you're well, you are sick, you are naked. You are, I mean, he's not like, oh, I don't see you, I just see me. I, God does not live in a lie, he lives in truth. But the truth is, that he loves you and has come after you. And there's a way to enter into a relationship with God and be his beloved son or daughter as nothing to do with you or what you've done, your spiritual resume, what's been done to you that's based completely on how God has reconciled you to himself through Christ. Now, number three. The third principle is that this message requires a response. And this is what this is what Paul is trying to get out so they, They've come to Jesus, right? They, they've come to him, they receive the Spirit and so on. But but now they're playing around with these other new teachers. They're considering leaving Jesus and leaving the teaching and leaving Paul as their apostle. And Paul says, hey, you don't get this. It's like, hey, you know, this is not a game. This is not just theology here. This is reality. You are part of a rebel race. It's the truth. And God has acted in Messiah, in time, in space. In 30 A.D., He went to the cross and he bore the sins of the world on a Friday afternoon at Passover and this is reality. And if you reject that reality, there is no way to be reconciled. There is no other way. He loves you, he's pursued you, He has made a way to reconcile you. But if you reject me as your apostle, you reject the message I bring about Jesus. You buy into another Jesus or another God. There is no other way. And you are under the judgment of a rebel race and you are going down. So, I beg you, on behalf of Jesus, be reconciled to God. Now is the day of salvation. Now is the day of Yahweh. If you reject this, there is no other way. Now, this is where I think as a culture and even sometimes in the church, we have really missed the boat. Because as a culture, we have bought into the crazy idea of a God of love. There was no idea like that before Jesus. In our culture today, if you believe in God, now you may not, you're an atheist, right? but if you believe in God, chances are you believe in a God of love. And we think it's normal. Well, where do you think we got that idea as a culture? We got it from Jesus. So we got the first half of the message as a culture. There is a God, He loves us, He's pursued us, but we have not understood the second half of the message is that we have to respond. We have to repent. We have to come under the leadership of our king. We have to receive this offer. We need to trust him to be sin for us. We need to have new creation in our life Listen and follow the Spirit. This is the message of reconciliation. And what has happened so often in our culture is that we've embraced the first half of the message of reconciliation. There's a God who loves us. But then we have totally rejected the second half of the message and we have created gods in our own image and said it doesn't matter what you believe as long as you're sincere because God is a God of love. That is half the message. The other message is that this is not a game. We're not free to redefine God in our image. There is a God. He is the real God. We are a rebel race. He has at 30 AD on a Friday afternoon put the sin of the world on this man, this Christ. And it's because of that and that alone that we can be reconciled. That if you choose any other way to try to be reconciled with God, you will be under the judgment of a holy God because you have rejected his offer and you have accepted the grace of God in vain. And what this means for us as followers of Jesus is that, hey, what does it mean to be a follower of Jesus? It means to come under his leadership, to receive this gift, to die with him to the old, to rise with him to the new, to experience new creation, to be new creation people. Remember what we saw last week there in your note sheet? Just a few verses before we started today, he died for all, that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them and was raised again. That too is the gospel. And so as followers of Jesus, are we embracing the whole gospel? Are we living under the leadership of our true king? Are we trusting him and him alone for our salvation? Or are we redefining God in our own image, in the image of our culture today that wants to accept the first half, the God of love, and then redefine who Jesus is or how we are reconciled to this God of love? If you're here today and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, then here's the message of God for you, that he loves you. It doesn't matter what you've done, where you've been, what's your story. There's a God who's come after you and made a way for you to come home that has nothing to do with your performance, has everything to do with his. And the question is, will you receive that? Bow the knee to your true king. Receive this gift of incredible amnesty for all crimes against the kingdom. Experience the new birth of the new creation. Be transformed so you can become, made changed at the core. Become the person you are created to be. So today, it seems so appropriate that on a message like this, we would celebrate communion, right? And uh, and so we're going to do that. The band's going to come out right now, and we're going to be going around the room and celebrating communion. And I've, I've got three messages for three different groups of people. So first of all, if you're a follower of Jesus, this is obvious for you. This is like our Day of Atonement, right? This is like we... We, we come to receive his broken body, his blood, to celebrate this forgiveness of sins through his life, his substitution for us, and to recommit ourselves that we would be new creation people, living this life for the next life, not for ourselves, but for him who died for us. For those of you who are here that maybe you're visiting, or you're new, or you've been coming for a while, but for whatever reason you're not yet ready to give your life to Jesus that you you hear the you hear him calling you you hear the offer but you're not ready to respond for whatever the reason then I would encourage you not to take communion today because this is an atonement ceremony right and you want to wait until you've made that decision so during this time of communion, encourages, we're all getting up, moving around. Feel free to stay at your seat, move around, find a place to think, reflect, pray, whatever. Um, uh, but if you're here today, and you're not yet a follower of Jesus, but you've come to believe in him, you believe this message of reconciliation, you want to be reconciled to God, you want to be part of the new creation. There's no better way than to come to the communion table and to take his body and his blood and just to pray and to ask Jesus to come into your life and to be your salvation. And if you're sincere, he will will hear that prayer. He will respond. And then you will begin this new journey with us of what it looks like to live a life that's living in a full-fledged reconciliation with God. Amen? Amen. Would you stand with me? I'm going to pray and then the band will play a little bit and then we're going to begin to worship together and celebrate this reckless, crazy, scandalous, mind-blowing, incredulous, some would say blasphemous love of God. Right? Let's pray together. Father, we come today nourished on your word and the beauty of your word that reminds us it's not about us, it's about you that... Our relationship with you is not something we earned or deserve. It's something that was a gift, purely a gift. While we were enemies, Christ died for us. We come today to celebrate that, to remember, to revel in that love, a love like this that the world had never heard about, that seemed crazy, that seemed beyond belief, and yet so true. And we come today to revel in that love. We pray you forgive us our sins. We pray that if there's any of us that we need to get back on track, living for you and not ourselves, that this would be just a beautiful time to do that. You'd be ministering to us. We pray for those that are coming that may not know you now, but they're gonna come and they're gonna ask you in their life. We pray that salvation would come, that for for them today would be the day of salvation. We pray for those that are struggling, not quite ready. We pray your Holy Spirit would be with them, gently prodding, calling them helping them to understand the stakes, moving them towards the day when they will say yes to the king who loves them and their lives will be transformed. And so, Father, we pray you meet us during this time as we celebrate your body, your blood for us. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.